0: Chapter 13 of Abraham Lincoln A History, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln A History, Volume 8 by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 13 Grant, General in Chief. The winter of eighteen sixty three to sixty four was unusually cold and after the exacting work of the autumn both western armies lay exhausted in their camps about chattanooga on the confederate side the ill fortune of their army was avenged in the usual manner bragg was deprived of his command although through the favour and friendship of mr davis he was afterwards ordered to richmond in the anomalous capacity of chief of staff and military adviser to the confederate president who sorely against his personal wishes felt himself compelled by the demands of public opinion to place general joseph e johnston at the head of the principal confederate armies of the west general polk took the place of johnston as commander of the department of mississippi and east louisiana and johnston proceeded immediately to dalton assuming command of the army of tennessee on the twenty seventh of december his instructions from richmond were couched in an optimistic tone mr seddon the confederate secretary of war said the movements of the enemy give no indication of a purpose to attack your army and it is probable that they may mean to strengthen themselves in the occupation of the portions of tennessee they have overrun it is not desirable they should be allowed to do so with impunity and as soon as the condition of your forces will allow it is hoped you will be able to resume the offensive at the same time it was clearly intimated to him that he must depend exclusively on the resources of his own department or on such help as general polk might be able to give him president davis also addressed the general in terms of exasperating serenity and composure he quoted to him a letter received from bragg in which that beaten commander said we can redeem the past let us concentrate all our available men unite them with this little army still full of zeal and burning to redeem its lost character and prestige hurl the whole upon the enemy and crush him in his power and his glory mr davis went on to tell general johnston that his army was after all in excellent condition you will not need to have it suggested he said that the imperative demand for prompt and vigorous action arises not only from the importance of restoring the prestige of the army and averting the injurious and dispiriting results that must attend a season of inactivity but from the necessity of reoccupying the country upon the supplies of which the proper subsistence of our armies materially depends the confederate president had a gift of never writing to johnston without infuriating him and one of the general's first duties on arriving at dalton and hurriedly inspecting his new command was to sit down and inform his president of the hard task he had set him and the insufficient means with which he had provided him he said he had present for duty about forty three thousand men the effective total of infantry and artillery being not quite thirty six thousand with twenty five hundred cavalry which he said was not very efficient he gave bragg's estimate of grant's force at eighty thousand an estimate which he elsewhere confessed was greatly exaggerated but he was bent on making out his own case as strong as possible he acknowledged the importance of recovering the territory lost but brought forward the serious difficulties that stood in the way if he should advance through east tennessee the way to georgia was left open if through the middle of the state the obstacles were chattanooga now a fortress the tennessee river The rugged desert of the cumberland mountains and an army outnumbering his own more than two to one he risked a suggestion which to the ears of the authorities in richmond had at the time an ominous and sinister sound though necessity forced it upon them afterwards the strengthening of the armies of the confederacy by the substitution of negroes for all the soldiers on detached or daily duty and in connection with this he made a remark which showed the subtle disorganization even then beginning to be apparent throughout the confederacy My experience in Mississippi was that impressed Negroes run away whenever it is possible, and are frequently encouraged by their masters to do so, and I never knew one to be returned by his master. General Johnston says that he found Dalton had not been selected by Bragg on account of any merit as a strategic position, but simply because the retreat for Missionary Ridge ceased at that town, the Federal Army having abandoned the pursuit." Each division occupied the place it had taken for the encampment of a night, and they afterwards constructed at these points huts for their winter quarters. The army occupied a precipitous ridge called Rocky Face, crossed by the railroad from Dalton to Chattanooga at Mill Creek Gap, three and a half miles west of Dalton, but terminating only three miles north of that point, and, therefore, easily flanked by the gold Road. This position could also be turned by Snake Creek Gap, traversing the mountains to the south he says he could have withdrawn to calhoun on the atlanta road had it not been for the earnestness with which mr davis and mr seddon urged an early resumption of offensive operations and their apprehensions of the bad effect of a retrograde movement on the spirits of the southern people the possession of kentucky and tennessee the vast subsistence depots of the south was a matter of such vital importance that the Confederate government at Richmond could not for a moment give up the hope of speedily regaining them. On the other hand, nothing was further from the mind of General Grant than to rest content even with the retention of the vast gains of the autumn. The early part of the winter was necessarily taken up in the strengthening of his position and the subsistence of his army, a matter which on both sides of the line was attended with the greatest labor and difficulty. But the Nashville and Chattanooga railroad was completed on the fourteenth of January, and trains began running regularly from Nashville to Chattanooga, relieving somewhat the dearth of supplies. Steps were then immediately taken to begin repairing the East Tennessee and Georgia railroad, which was put in running order as far as Loudoun four weeks later. Meanwhile, General Sherman, who commanded the Department of the Tennessee and therefore had especially in his charge the east bank of the Mississippi River from Natchez to the Ohio, asked to receive permission from general grant to go down the mississippi river to strike a blow at the confederate forces in the interior of the state of mississippi and by this means if possible put a stop to the annoyance and obstruction which raids on the river occasioned to the traffic of that stream it was proposed that banks should at the same time make a similar movement in louisiana sherman therefore prepared a picked force of two columns consisting of two divisions each mcpherson commanding the right And hurlbut the left, which started east from Vicksburg on the third of February. At the same time, a large cavalry force under the command of General W Suey Smith was to start south from Memphis to ride through the country and join General Sherman at Meridian, Mississippi. Sherman marched in the lightest possible order and without deployment straight for Meridian, distant one hundred and fifty miles. He soon came in contact with the rebel cavalry but with his compact force brushed them like flies before him, meeting with no substantial opposition. A curious incident befell him at the village of Decatur. Hurlbut's column was several miles in advance, and Sherman halted with his escort at a farmhouse which he entered. He asked for supper, and lying down went to sleep. He was soon awakened by a great noise and confusion in the farmyard. Some of Hurlbut's wagons which were passing had been attacked by rebel cavalry, Sherman gathered his clerks and orderlies together, and was preparing to defend himself in a corn crib, when the head of McPherson's column appeared on the road, and the Confederate troops rode away, unconscious of the rich prize they had for a moment in their grasp. Sherman entered Meridian on the 14th, destroying the arsenals and storehouses, and the railroads in every direction for miles around. He sent out a large force of infantry to break up the Mobile and Ohio road to the north and south and the jackson and selma road to the east and west he had succeeded in creating the impression on the minds of the rebel authorities in the state that his objective point was mobile an impression which was confirmed by demonstration made at the point of farragut and his march for this reason caused immense excitement which effectively furthered his real purpose unfortunately the cavalry force under general smith did not accomplish their part of the plan they lost several days in getting started and were finally defeated and driven back by Forrest near West Point below Okolona on the Mobile and Ohio road. Sherman, after waiting a week at Meridian for news of Smith, having utterly destroyed the railroads in that region, began to retrace his steps toward Vicksburg. Leaving his troops to follow at their leisure, he took a small escort and, in advance of his army, rode into Vicksburg on the twenty ninth of February after a hasty visit to new orleans where he arranged to furnish a corps of some ten thousand men to banks to assist in his operations west of the river he went up the mississippi to report to grant the continued presence of longstreet in east tennessee had become very irksome to grant and on the tenth of february having accumulated supplies for the support of a considerable force at knoxville he ordered thomas to start for that place on the thirteenth to cooperate with the army of the ohio in driving Longstreet out of the country. But before Thomas moved, Grant had a conversation at Nashville with General J. G. Foster, who had been relieved by General Schofield and was on his way to the north, which convinced him that what might be accomplished by the proposed campaign would not compensate for the hardships which the men would endure and the disadvantage which would result to the coming spring campaign. At the same time he acquired the impression that most of Johnston's force had been withdrawn from Thomas's front, He therefore changed the orders he had given for the march to Knoxville, but as Thomas was all ready for the road, he directed him to move to his immediate front, the object being to gain possession of Dalton, and as far south of that as possible. This impression of General Grant's proved to be erroneous. The rebel authorities in Richmond, as well as in Mississippi, had been greatly disturbed by Sherman's move to Meridian. It was taken for granted that Mobile was in danger. Mr. Davis telegraphed to Johnston either to send Polk reinforcements, or to join him in person with what force he could. General Johnston very sensibly replied that it would be impossible for troops from Dalton to meet the Federal Army before it reached the Gulf, and, in answer to subsequent solicitations, he said that such an expedition would require two-thirds of his army, and involve the abandonment of his present line, upon which Davis directed him peremptorily to send infantry enough to enable Polk to beat the detachment which the enemy has thrown far into the interior of our country." and when johnston replied in his habitual tone that it was too late for such an object mr davis gave him at last a positive order to send hardy with his corps to polk without delay johnston obeyed this order with such deliberation that hardy's advance which did not start until sherman was preparing to return never got farther than the tom bigbee river and his troops were recalled by mr davis himself on the twenty third so that when general thomas moved forward under the impression entertained by grant that johnston's army had been withdrawn from dalton he found the confederates in full force in their entrenchments and on the ridge of rocky face after a thorough reconnaissance finding that the supposed conditions under which the movement was made did not exist thomas withdrew his army to his former position Schofield, who had relieved foster in tennessee after a brief demonstration against longstreet who was retiring from his front also have returned for lack of supplies and of transportation it seems impossible to exaggerate the helpless condition of the armies on both sides in the matter of transportation thomas says scarcely any of his artillery could be moved for lack of horses and johnston reports that for a long time after he arrived at dalton his artillery horses were so feeble from their hard service and scarcity of forage that it was not only impossible to manoeuvre the batteries in action but also to march with them at the ordinary rate of speed on ordinary roads And even so late as February, when the supply of forage had become regular, and the face of the country almost dry, the teams of the Napoleon guns were unable to draw them up a trifling hill, over which the roads to their stables passed. Immediately after the victories at Chattanooga, Mr. Washburn of Illinois, the devoted friend and firm supporter of General Grant, through good and evil report, introduced a bill in Congress to revive the grade of Lieutenant General in the Army the measure occasioned a good deal of discussion this high rank had never been conferred on any citizen of the republic except washington who held it for a short time before his death it was discontinued for more than half a century and then conferred by brevet only upon general scott there were those who feared or affected to fear that so high military rank was threatening to the liberties of the republic the great majority of congress however considered the liberties of the republic more robust than this fear would indicate and the bill was finally passed on the twenty-sixth of february and received the approval of the president on the twenty-ninth of february it provided for the revival of the grade of lieutenant-general and authorized the president to appoint by and with the advice and consent of the senate a lieutenant-general to be selected from among those officers in the military service of the united states not below the grade of major-general most distinguished for courage skill and ability who being commissioned as lieutenant-general may be authorized, under the direction and during the pleasure of the President to command the armies of the United States. Immediately upon signing the bill, the President nominated Grant to the Senate for the office created by it. Although the bill, of course, mentioned the name of no general, there was no pretense from the beginning that anyone else was thought of in connection with the place. The administration exercised no influence in the matter, neither helping nor hindering the progress of the bill through the Houses of Congress. It had already become clearly manifest that General Halleck, although an officer of great learning and ability, was not fitted by character or temperament for the assumption of such weighty responsibilities as the military situation required. The President himself said about this time, When it appeared that McClellan was incompetent to the work of handling the army, and we sent for Halleck to take command, he stipulated that it should be with the full powers and responsibilities of General-in-Chief. He kept that attitude until Pope's defeat— but ever since that event he has shrunk from responsibility whenever it was possible. So that in the mind of the President, as well as in the intention of Congress and the acquiescence of the public, there was no thought of nominating any anyone but Grant to the chief command of all the armies. Whether he was or was not the ablest of all our generals is a question which can never be decided. Perhaps there were legionnaires in the army of Gaul as able as Caesar, if occasion had been given them to show it. The success and fame of generals is the joint result of merit and of opportunity, and Grant was, beyond all comparison, the most fortunate of American soldiers. Whatever criticism might be made on his character, his learning, or his methods, the fact was not to be denied that he had reaped the most substantial successes of the war, he had captured two armies, and utterly defeated a third. He was justly entitled, by virtue of the spolia opima with which he had presented the Republic, to his triumph to be celebrated with all the pomp and circumstance possible the senate immediately confirmed his nomination and on the third of march the secretary of war directed him to report in person to the war department as early as practicable considering the condition of his command he started for washington the next day but in the midst of his hurried preparations for departure he found time to write a letter of the most warm and generous friendship to sherman he had not even yet heard the news of his confirmation but he took it for granted he said I start in the morning to comply with the order, but I shall say very distinctly on my arrival there that I shall accept no appointment which will require me to make that city, Washington, my headquarters. While I have been eminently successful in this war, in at least gaining the confidence of the public, no one feels more than I, how much of this success is due to the energy, skill, and harmonious putting forth of that energy and skill, of those whom it has been my good fortune to have occupying subordinate positions under me. There are many officers to whom these remarks are applicable to a greater or less degree, proportionate to their ability as soldiers. But what I want is to express my thanks to you, and McPherson as the men to whom, above all others, I feel indebted for whatever I have had of success. How far your advice and suggestions have been of assistance you know. How far your execution of whatever has been given you to do entitles you to the reward I am receiving, you cannot know as well as I do. I feel all the gratitude this letter would express— giving it the most flattering construction the word you i use in the plural intending it for mcpherson also this letter was as unique as it was admirable for grant wrote in this strain to no one else in the world there seemed no room in his heart for more than two such friends when mcpherson died in the flower of his young manhood sheridan took the vacant place in the confidence and affection of his great chief where he and sherman remained ever after without rivals sherman who received the letter on his way up the river from the meridian raid answered in a similar strain with even more of ardent and liberal eulogy you do yourself injustice and us too much honor in assigning to us so large a share of the merits which have led to your high advancement you are now washington's legitimate successor and occupy a position of almost dangerous elevation but if you can continue as heretofore to be yourself simple honest and unpretending you will enjoy through life the respect and love of friends, and the homage of millions of human beings, who will award you a large share for securing to them and their descendants a government of law and stability. I repeat, you do General McPherson and myself too much honor. At Belmont, you manifested your traits, neither of us being near. At Donelson also you illustrated your whole character. I was not near, and General McPherson in too subordinate a capacity to influence you, i believe you are as brave patriotic and just as the great prototype washington as unselfish kind-hearted and honest as a man should be but the chief characteristic in your nature is the simple faith in success you have always manifested which i can liken to nothing else than the faith a christian has in his savior this faith you gave your victory at shiloh and vicksburg also when you have completed your best preparations you go into battle without hesitation as at chattanooga no doubts, no reserve. And I tell you that it was this that made us act with confidence. I knew wherever I was that you thought of me, and if I got in a tight place, you would come, if alive. Now, as to the future, do not stay in Washington. Halleck is better qualified than you are to stand the buffets of intrigue and policy. Come out west. Take to yourself the whole Mississippi Valley. Let us make it dead sure. And I tell you the Atlantic slope and Pacific shores will follow its destiny, as sure as the limbs of a tree live or die with the main trunk. We have done much. Still much remains to be done. Time and time's influences are all with us. We could almost afford to sit still and let these influences work. Even in the seceded states, your word now would go farther than a president's proclamation or an act of Congress. For God's sake, and for your country's sake, come out of Washington. I foretold to General Halleck before he left Corinth the inevitable result to him, and I now exhort you to come out west. Here lies the seat of the coming empire, and from the west, when our task is done, we will make short work of Charleston and Richmond, and the impoverished coast of the Atlantic. In both of these letters there is apparent not a very intelligent dread of Washington and its political influences, something of the feeling which sailors have towards lawyers. Grant assures sherman beforehand that he shall not accept his new grade if he is compelled to make his headquarters in washington and sherman adjures him by all that is sacred to avoid the atlantic coast altogether it evidently did not enter the minds of either that the loftiest honors and no small degree of enjoyment awaited both of them in years to come in the city which they regarded with such superstitious apprehensions grant proceeded on his way to the capital as quietly as possible But the rumors of his coming went everywhere before him and his train moved through a continual storm of cheering and enthusiasm from nashville to washington he reached there on the evening of the eighth of march there was to be a reception at the executive mansion and as grant's arrival was expected the throng was very great at about half past nine grant entered and he and the president met for the first time a certain movement and rumor in the crowd heralded the approach of the most famous guest of the evening and when General Grant stood before Mr. Lincoln, they recognized each other without formal presentation, and cordially shook hands. The thronging crowd, with instinctive deference, stood back for a moment, while the President and the General exchanged a few words of conversation. Lincoln then introduced Seward to Grant, and the Secretary of State took him away to present him to Mrs. Lincoln. He then went on to the East Room, where his presence excited a feeling which burst the bonds of etiquette, and cheer after cheer rose from the assembled crowd. Hot and blushing with embarrassment, he was forced to mount a sofa from which he could shake hands with the eager admirers who rushed upon him from all sides of the great room. It was an hour before he could return to the small drawing-room, where, after the departure of the crowd, the President awaited him. The President here made an appointment with him for the formal presentation next day of his commission as Lieutenant General. "'I shall make a very short speech to you,' said Lincoln, to which I desire you to reply, for an object and that you may be properly prepared to do so i have written what i shall say only four sentences in all which i will read from my manuscript as an example which you may follow and also read your reply as you are perhaps not so much accustomed to public speaking as i am and i therefore give you what i shall say to you that you may consider it there are two points that i would like to have you make in your answer first to say something which shall prevent or obviate any jealousy of you from any of the other generals in the service and second, something which shall put you on as good terms as possible with the Army of the Potomac. If you see any objection to doing this, be under no restraint whatever in expressing that objection to the Secretary of War. General Grant and Mr. Stanton left the room together. The next day, at one o'clock, in the presence of the Cabinet, General Halleck, two members of General Grant's staff, and the President's private secretary, the commission of Lieutenant General was formally delivered by the President. Mr. Lincoln said, General Grant, the nation's appreciation of what you have done, and its reliance upon you for what remains to do in the existing great struggle, are now presented, with this commission constituting you lieutenant-general in the Army of the United States. With this high honor devolves upon you also a corresponding responsibility. As the country herein trusts you, so, under God, it will sustain you. I scarcely need to add that, with what I here speak for the nation, goes my own hearty personal concurrence." the General had hurriedly and almost illegibly written his speech on half a sheet of notepaper in lead-pencil. His embarrassment was evident and extreme. He found his own writing very difficult to read, but what he said could hardly have been improved. Mr. President, I accept this commission with gratitude for the high honor conferred. With the aid of the noble armies that have fought on so many fields for our common country, it will be my earnest endeavor not to disappoint your expectations." I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving on me, and I know that if they are met, it will be due to those armies, and above all to the favor of that providence which leads both nations and men. It will be observed that he made no reference whatever to the subject of the President's request the night before. It is not known whether he did this after consultation with Stanton, or whether, with his deep distrust of Washington politicians, he thought it wise to begin by disregarding all their suggestions. On the same day general halleck sent a letter to the secretary of war respectfully requesting that since the grade of lieutenant-general superior to his own had been created and the distinguished officer promoted to that rank had received his commission and reported for duty that orders might be issued placing him in command of the army and relieving general halleck from that duty in making this request he says i am influenced solely by a desire to conform to the provisions of the law which in my opinion impose upon a lieutenant-general the duties and responsibilities of General-in-Chief of the Army. After the presentation of the commission, a brief conversation took place. General Grant inquired what special service was expected of him. The president replied that the country wanted him to take Richmond. He said our generals had not been fortunate in their efforts in that direction, and asked if the lieutenant-general could do it. Grant, without hesitation, answered that he could if he had the troops. These the president assured him he should have, There was not one word said as to what route to richmond should be chosen the next day grant visited general meade at the headquarters of the army of the potomac at brandy station he had known general meade slightly in the mexican war but had not met him since he was a stranger to the army of the potomac with the exception of a few officers of the regular army whom he had known in mexico meade received him not only with the courtesy and deference due to his high rank and great services but with a generosity and magnanimity which impressed grant most favorably meade said that it was possible grant might want an officer to command the army of the potomac who had been with him in the west and made a special mention of sherman he begged him that if that was the case not to hesitate about making the change he urged says grant that the work before us was of such vast importance to the whole nation that the feelings or wishes of no one person should stand in the way of selecting the right men for all positions For himself, he would serve to the best of his ability wherever placed. Grant assured him that he had no thought of making any change, and that Sherman could not be spared from the West. He returned to Washington on the 11th. The next day he was placed in command of all the armies by orders from the War Department, but without waiting for a single day to accept the lavish proffers of hospitality which were showered upon him, he started West again on the evening of the 11th of March. In that short time he had utterly changed his views and plans for the future conduct of the war. He had relinquished the purpose he had hitherto firmly held of leading the Western armies on the great campaign to Atlanta and the sea, and had decided to take the field with the Army of the Potomac. When I got to Washington, he said, and saw the situation, it was plain that here was the point for the commanding general to be. No one else could probably resist the pressure that would be brought to bear upon him to desist from his own plans and pursue others." He, therefore, hurried back to the west to make preparations for finally severing his relations with those magnificent armies which had gained him so many victories. Sherman, at his request, was promoted to command the military division of the Mississippi. McPherson succeeded to Sherman's command of the Department of the Tennessee, and Logan was promoted to the command of McPherson's Corps. End of chapter 13